None of us like rejection, but what happens when the rejection or perceived failure triggers severe emotional pain? According to the Cleveland Clinic, this condition called rejection-sensitive dysphoria, or RSD, is often linked with ADHD, can be due to differences in brain structure, and makes it difficult for your brain to regulate rejection-related emotions behavior, escalating the resultant impact far beyond the norm. Today's guest, Tim Kettenring, brings a unique perspective to this discussion. He has shared very publicly about his struggles with the condition while also being a respected expert in training high-performance athletes. Our discussion will bridge the gap between the two, what he's discovered that may be helpful to others, and will also pick his brain about one of your favorite topics, human performance. Thanks for spending a few minutes of your week with us here on the Catalyst 360 podcast, your source for engaging evidence-based health, wellness, and performance insights. I'm your host, Dr. Brad Cooper, CEO of Catalyst Coaching 360, and Tim and I connected offline after he shared about his personal struggles, as I thought it might be helpful to many, either you as our listeners or people you know, if he were willing to discuss it further. We decided to hit the pause button for a few months, and then he recently reached back out to me to say, I'm ready. And that led to today's discussion. Speaking of discussions, if you're an employer, EAP, or wellness service provider looking to integrate real conversations with nationally board certified coaches for the employee team members you serve, Catalyst Coaching 360 might be the solution you've been seeking. Now in our 18th year of providing the very best in health, wellness, and high-performance coaching for organizations nationwide, we offer you an alternative to the generic call center-based coaching with low participation and even lower engagement. If you're looking to create lasting, meaningful, and positive change for those you serve, maybe it's time for a Catalyst. Contact us anytime, results at CatalystCoaching360.com or visit the website CatalystCoaching360.com and we'll help you create an effective roadmap going forward. And now, it's time to listen in with Tim Kettenring on the latest episode of the Catalyst 360 podcast. Tim, really appreciate it. We talked a little bit offline. Uh, This is a a tough one. I mean, you're this all-star. You're this guy working with high performers, and yet you've publicly shared these struggles. So thank you for your willingness to be transparent, that authenticity that... I, it's just so important right now. So thank you. I appreciate you having me, Brad. And I appreciate those, you sharing those sentiments with me as well. Let's jump right in. Let's, let's lay out the, this rejection sensitive dysphoria that I had never heard of before. And then we're talking about it over the Thanksgiving table. We had some friends over with family. One of them said, that's me. I'm like, hmm. what? So I, I think both from our conversations offline and that happening, this is far more common than we realize. Tell us a little bit about this. How did you discover it in yourself? Yeah, just walk us through the basics. So rejection-sensitive dysphoria or RSD is uh, probably the most significant symptom of uh, attention attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Really? So ADHD is probably super commonly misunderstood um, as kind of like the inattentive type. Mm Mm-hmm but essentially it's just an executive dysfunction and from a, a lack of dopamine production in the brain. So it's a lot of times presents in childhood with your typical, you know, hyperactive little boy or hyper-focused little girl. And then obviously like progresses most commonly into adulthood for most people who are diagnosed as children 
And, uh, I was not diagnosed actually until I was 38. Oh, wow. Uh, despite, uh, my, my wife was a psychologist actually w- probably around the time we got married, uh, 11 years ago, she asked if I had ever been tested for ADHD. And I was like, no, you know, I just kind of knew that that was something that affected me, but didn't really understand just how deeply. And so I just kind of ignored it um, <clears throat> until a series of events uh, kind of led my therapist to ask, you know, is this something that maybe we should look into more deeply? I said, yeah, let's, let's, let's go ahead and, and talk about it a little bit. And so we did an assessment and um, combined type, which is basically uh, hyperactive uh, and inattentive. So it's the worst of both worlds, which from a, obviously from, from a professional and academic standpoint makes a lot of my struggles in school. And then as a professional adapting to those kinds of environments make a lot more sense. Mm. But then when I started to, to dig in more to the emotional dysregulation piece, so that that rejection sensitive dysphoria, the RSD, there's a lot of similarities with personality disorders. Um, so, uh, sometimes it's even misdiagnosed acutely, like in a clinical setting as bipolar, um, it's also de- misdiagnosed as like major depressive disorder. Uh, there are a lot of, well, there's a lot of overlap, uh, mm-hmm. between personality disorders and RSD, but when you look at it over the long term what sets RSD apart from personality disorders is that it's very, very short term. So like, for example, if I'm experiencing an RSD episode, it may be an hour, it may be a couple of days. Um, and then obviously like, that has various components, like within that time frame. some of it could be, you know, extreme anxiety. Um, some of it could be, uh, you know, deep depression, but, um, the differentiation is that, or at least from a clinical standpoint is that it doesn't last for an extended period of time, thus can't be diagnosed as bipolar, major depressive disorder, um, anxiety, depression, generalized, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but from, from my perspective, kind of reflecting back on my life and, uh, a lot of my challenges, again, academically, uh, professionally, but then also like in relationships and friendships in, um, and that goes, that runs the gamut from friendships, uh, relationships with my parents, uh, romantic relationships, relationships with my coaches as an athlete, uh, relationships with uh, colleagues, uh, always have always been a struggle because mm-hmm. Anytime I felt the slightest hint of criticism or um, any type of negative affect, it was like immediate. Um, And so it affected obviously like how we interacted with everybody, but then it also affected um, any perception that I had of, and it could have been constructive, but there was almost no chance that I was going to take it as such. Wow. A lot in there. Um, let, let's, let's, 
lean back into the ADHD piece of it. Um, do you see those as separate? Do you see them as same? Like when I say let's lean into that, are you saying, well, Brad, you can't like it's the same. It, it's, it's too interconnected or are you able to address this over here and this over here, knowing they influence one another? So they really, I, I perceive them as being completely different. Um, and, and especially from, so the way that I like treat my inattentiveness or my, and my hyperactivity is, is through mindfulness, mindfulness meditation, um, like true, like Zen, uh, like a Zen practice and, um, through therapy. Um, and then I take uh 20 milligram extended release Adderall, um, daily, and generally those, the combination of those things, uh, will help with my ability to focus. Um, and then, you know, building practical organizational systems in place, um, understanding that I have to have a million different to-do lists and that I have to have a really structured way to organize those to-do lists. Uh, those are all like kind of the cognitive, um, you know, like true executive function, um, strategies that I have to, that I have to use in addition to obviously medication, uh, for the kind of the emotional dysregulation side, because it does present as anxiety and depression, there's obviously a therapeutic component to that as well. But, um, really it's, it's being able to, or trying to create some sort of space between whatever the stimulus is and then whatever my emotional response is. Which obviously like mindfulness, mindfulness meditation will help with that over time. Um, but ultimately like it, it does come down to like a, it's, there's, there's a neurobiological, you know, issue or challenge that I have that, and, and everyone with ADHD has and that because there's not, there isn't sufficient dopamine production, there is no space between stimulus and response. So it's like, you know, the, the Victor Frankl quote, Right. It applies to most people, but it doesn't necessarily apply to us with, with ADHD. So um, there's, there are a couple of medications, clonidine and, and guanfacine, both of which are uh, alpha agonists for uh, hypertension. And uh, I take a, like a low dose, uh, two milligram guanfacine. Uh, and that helps significantly delay that, that response. Um, and obviously combined with really trying to create space myself when there is an incident and incident doesn't necessarily again, mean anything negative. It's just, there could be something that I would normally perceive as uh, falling under the umbrella of RSD, whether it's constructive criticism or otherwise, um, or, you know, uh, something as simple as I didn't, put the, the grill cover on and my, my wife got mad at me, which is totally understandable. And yet it could bring me to tears. So, um, but being able to obviously like have a little bit of a buffer and then start working on the cognitive piece of, okay, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. My wife was up, is upset with me. I deserve that. And it's okay. Like, doesn't mean I necessarily have to like, like the world is ending and I am totally worthless. I love how you've taken, it sounds to me like a 360 degree approach to this. You haven't said, 
oh, I just need to exercise more and that'll fix it. Or I just need to meditate more. Like it sounds to me like you're addressing all the, the medical side, the physical side, the, the meditation side, the rational side. Has it always been that way? Or did you have, I, I've had people call it ADHD denial where it's like, no, 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 it's just me. Like, that's just how I'm made. I love being me. I'm not getting on meds because that's going to mess up who I am. Like, was there any of that early on? Do you have friends that I, you you would use that phrase with? Like, talk us through that component because it seems like that's a common element, especially with something like ADHD. I haven't really thought about it that much, to be honest with you. Um, I think... So ADHD is obviously like highly heritable as well. And there's no doubt both of my parents uh, have ADHD undiagnosed and kind of glossed over it when I, when I shared that with them. Oh yeah, we knew, you know, we're ADHD too. But they don't think they really understand that again, it's more of that classical, like, or either inattentive or, or, you know, lack of ability to focus, but it's, you know, you use the term comprehensive, like, it really is. A, it's a, it's a comprehensive, very complex disorder. Um, and so being in the profession that I'm in, so like one, it's like, I'm a high performance director for a professional rugby club. And what that means is that I have to facilitate the integration between every part of our organization from uh, the rugby staff to the medical staff, to strength and conditioning, to sports science, to, the players themselves to management and make sure that all stakeholders are as selflessly involved in the decision-making process as possible so that ultimately we can achieve peak performance on the field. So that kind of approach to complex issues and challenges that ADHD presents just kind of makes more sense to me. Um, But then the more that I, I read on it, that seems to be kind of the best approach uh, for all the reasons really, because it it does create so many different um, challenges from a lifestyle and and productivity and and relationship standpoint. So you don't let me put words in your mouth here, but what I'm hearing you say is if there's somebody out there that's saying, yeah, I, that kind of sounds like me or, or I've been diagnosed, but I, I've kind of been holding back. You would say, stop screwing around. You can be a better version of you if you'll try this comprehensive approach. Is that, am I hearing you right? Or at least for yourself, that's what you've seen is you've, you haven't become less of you. You become a better version of you that allows you to come out because you've addressed these gaps. Right. Yeah. I mean, because like when you think about neurodiversity, just as a concept, obviously it's, it's kind of a, a, a laterality of thinking and, and in that, and, and some ways like ADHD is kind of a cognitive superpower because when you can harness it, you know, many of us like have IQs one, two, three standard deviations above the mean. So when you do have the ability to take control of those, that potential, it really is like a superpower, but if you never create the systems or the supports or have medication, some sort of medical protocol in place to be able to do that, then you really are only going to be able to harness it in bits and pieces or at certain times. Yeah. Well said. 
Oh, man, there's so many different directions we can go. Let, let, let's start with this. How, how does RSD, again, folks, it's rejection-sensitive dysphoria, impact individuals in their personal professional lives? And you've talked about the coping strategies, but is there anything else that maybe you've tried, hasn't been a, a thing that you've adopted, or something you're looking at adding in the future? Is there anything else that we haven't covered here in your initial kind of, this is where I'm at, Brad, this is what I've been doing, that you want to just throw out there on the table for us? It's all kind of kind of new to me. I mean, this has all kind of happened within the last year. So Interesting. I, I'm not, I'm kind of not totally in the dark because like I have, I have done a good bit of research and obviously like just being in therapy is, is super helpful. But a lot of it for me is like, comes down to understanding, you know, here's here, my specific, you know, subset of challenges and how RSD affects me. Now here are maybe some potential solutions. Okay. Trial and error. This, this worked well in this situation. Maybe this didn't, um, I think the one thing that I probably haven't done uh, enough of a job of like a good enough job of is, is just being really patient in those situations because the whatever particular emotion that, you know, the RSD episode may have evoked is usually so intense that it seems like, so like dysphoria in Greek is, is, is unbearable, like means unbearable. And that's really what a lot of the anxiety and um, if, if it presents as depression really feels like in an, in an RSD episode. So it's kind of, once I get out of it, I kind of have to reflect back. Maybe there's some journaling, maybe there's, um, you know, some discussion in, in, in therapy about maybe what I can do to manage the next episode, or if there's a, if it's kind of a recurring thing. So like performance reviews, for example, nightmares. <laughs> so you, you can imagine. <laughs> oh, I so, can't imagine. Oh my gosh. I didn't even think about it, that. Yeah. It's like for, for six years, I worked at the, I was an assistant athletic director and a, a head of strength and conditioning at a small university in new Orleans where I live. And I mean, every, I think we did uh semi-annual. So every six months we get a performance review with, my boss who I, I enjoyed, you know, working with for the most part, but you know, there was always like the, so there'd be the typical, like, you know, ADHD things. So like, I would never like task orientation, uh, task initiation, motivation, sometimes like all of those affected my ability to do my job. But then when it came time for report performance reviews, for the most part, like I would, I would do okay because the coaching component of my job, I did really well is the administrative component of my job that didn't do well. But then it, when it came to review time, of course it was, I things. perceived it as a bloodbath, even right. though it was like, yeah, you're doing pretty good. Right. Right. Well, so. and I think everybody relates to that on a minuscule level. You always, they always say you come out of it with, there were 20 good things and two that you could work on. You're like, Oh, I'm a disaster. I'm terrible. But you're saying it's not, it's like to the hundredth degree. Absolutely. It's like the 20, the 20 good things didn't even exist. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the short term piece with RSD and you said it could be an hour, it could be a day. Is, is that part of your strategy knowing this will be, this is going to flip in a day. This is going to flip in a week or 
is it so all over the place from an hour to three weeks that it's that that's not really helpful? Um, because they're obviously like there's a neurochemical component. Um, the, it's always, it's never going to be more than a couple of days. Okay. Um, there will be some ebb and flow past that period of time, but generally like two to three days is, is about the longest. Um, and obviously like the initial onset is the most intense. So trying to see past that is the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. And for me, I just kind of try to, even though it's obviously still a challenge to just remind myself, like, this is temporary. Eventually this is going to abate, you know, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to survive first of all. And then second of all, like there is an end in sight, even though I don't necessarily see that end. But the rational, I mean, part of this is that we can't over, we can't, the rational can't win in the short term because nope. we're in the midst of this. Right. And so you're, you're using it as a, a little bit of a buffer, but the fact is even saying, I know I'm going to be fine. I know I'm going to survive. I know my marriage isn't going in the pot. I know I'm not getting fired, but in the moment, it, it kind of feels like all those things are or could happen. Right. Exactly. And that's, and that's the other thing too, like for me is because I've had basically like a lifetime of, of these kinds of challenges that I didn't understand that uh, people around me didn't understand. There's, there's a cumulative trauma effect there too, like kind of a complex PS, PTSD. So whenever there's some sort of significant RSD episode now, all of that comes up. Mm. So the, traumatic component, at least like from my perspective, and I think is probably fairly common in people who are diagnosed with ADHD as adults, um, is makes managing those RSD episodes even more challenging because then it's like, you know, I flash back to when I'm in kindergarten. Oh, well, Tim can't sit still. Mm. Got it. Got it. Um, Okay, so we talked about early on, you're a high-performance specialist, and, and we're going to actually shift the conversation that direction. I want to pick your brain while we got your, your brain available to us. In a society increasingly focused on, and you hear it all the time, resilience and mental well-being, how, how can we foster understanding, empathy for those that are experiencing RSD? I, I, what would you advise a spouse, a friend, a peer, a manager when someone brings this to the forefront or, or maybe you just recognize some of the things that you're talking about. I mean, obviously like with, with anything, um, mental health related. And I say that like not in kind of the, the, the trite way that it's, it's, it's right. used now. Right, right. There obviously the education piece is huge and, um, providing, you know, evidence-based information to whoever it is uh, in as objective of a manner as possible, I think is probably foundational from there then share. So like if it's, if it's a first person scenario where, you know, I'm talking with my general manager, I present him the information. I say, okay, now here's how it presents in my own experience. Here's how it presents like, when we have these conversations, 
uh, if it's a, you know, interpersonal, obviously like that's a little bit different where it's hard to kind of take the emotionality out of those conversations. Um, but that's where timing comes into play. Uh, I know like for my part, uh, so we have a, we have a four-year-old, so our, the, the times where we can have adult conversations are obviously few and far between, but <laughs> if I know that we're going to be uh, in the car together for, you know, 30, 45 minutes, that's when I'll have those conversations with my wife. Um, in the same form, obviously, luckily, like, you know, being married to a psychologist lends itself to being sure. able to talk about those kinds of challenges and, and things in depth in a way that she obviously, and I don't have to necessarily understand. I mean, I don't have to explain things at the same, in the same way uh, that I would with, with a lay person. Um, but I've even had conversations about it with my athletes, you know, like, and obviously working in a professional environments, it's a little bit more collegial than, than working in the, at other levels, um, at least as far as like what I do. So, um, you know, sometimes I've had to talk to guys one-on-one it's like, Hey, like, you know, when you said this in this setting, here's how it made me feel. And here's why Mm. let's try to, let's try to work through this a little bit together because like, you know, ultimately like we have to work towards the same, the same goal and we have to do it together. And if we keep having these kinds of interactions that may seem benign, it's going to, eventually create a a relationship that's not manageable and people are going to see that. So, um, they're really, really difficult trend, uh, conversations to have with the level of transparency that most people aren't comfortable with. And from the other side, so your manager, your, if your spouse was not a psychologist, um, (laughs) what would you, what, what tips might you give that person? in engaging with someone who you're sensing this might be a thing. I don't want to step on their toes. I don't want to accuse them of anything. I don't want to like, you know, make them mad at me, but is is there a sensitive way to approach the conversation? Even in the absence of the, I don't want to say diagnosis, but identification of the RSD. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, being extremely conscientious that the person could take whatever you're saying and magnify it significantly Mm -hmm. um, because there's already going to understand like, okay, if I'm, if I'm a manager and I understand, okay, I've got a little bit of a negativity bias. I'm always going to lean a little bit in this direction. When I receive feedback, when I give feedback, how does it make me feel? Okay. I need to go the other direction when I give feedback to this person to make sure that they a feel valued and feel um, worthy as a person, irrespective of the profession and, or, or the professional relationship. And then understand that like the feedback that I'm giving you is because I care about you because I care about you as a person, because I care about your development as a person and, and as a professional. Now here's the feedback. How can we work together collaboratively so that you understand this is not, this isn't a punitive scenario. This is a support scenario. And how can we move forward together with that in mind? That almost sounds like great advice for any manager, any (laughs) parent, any spouse, any friend. That just sounds like great advice, period, my friend. 
And I, it, it, I mean, I, I wish <laughs> I, need, I probably need to take in some of my own interactions. Oh my gosh. I love it. But I think you know, just, I just, what, what I would like to hear from people right. would be that. Right. Right. Maybe there's a lesson for all of us in that one. All right, let, let's shift to the high performance stuff. As long as we got your, your, uh, your brain working here, your work with athletes, folks on strength, power development, uh, including with endurance athletes. We have, we have a lot of runners, triathletes, cyclists, and others who would fit that, that endurance category that are listening and probably don't have a power or strength training regimen in their schedule. What, what would you tell them? They're, they're like, nah, dude, I just need to run more. I just need to bike more. I just need to get in the pool more. Like, what, what would you say to that person? How many, how many friends would I make if I, if I told your <laughs> listeners I was born in Colorado? <laughs> oh, there you go. Nice. And, and was a, I was a competitive endurance athlete as well. Oh, nice. So that yeah, was a, a cat one mountain biker for a long time. Um, so the biggest thing with endurance athletes that I see is like uh, low bone mineral density. So strength training is going to elicit uh, you know, obviously like a calcium response, mm. um, skeletally, which is going to improve bone mineral density right away. Not going to have nearly as many stress fractures, um, or, or risk any, t- or even like regular fracture fractures. Um, and then from, from a muscular standpoint, like the more, obviously like the stronger a, pati- a particular muscle group is, or a particular movement pattern is, the better, uh, so if you take running, for example, quads, hamstrings, calves, glutes get stronger. Uh, they're generally going to be able to handle ground reaction forces better. So every time the foot hits the ground, you know, two and a half, three times body weight, um, that force is going back into the body, relatively speaking. So the stronger the athlete is, the better they're going to be able to handle those ground reaction forces and the more efficiently they were going to be able to use them to continue to run faster, improve running economy, things like that. Um, and then you've got like, obviously the other soft tissues, um, tendons, for example, um, with, uh, running and swimming, for example, you've got, um, biceps tendon issues in, in the shoulders, you've got, um, quad patella tendon, uh, Achilles tendon, um, probably got some elbow tendon issues with, with swimmers as well. Uh, and cyclists actually, um, sit in the arrow position for too long. Um, all of those things are going to get, uh, a little bit less, uh, problematic with some, uh, improved stiffness of the tendons. So, you know, um, when you think about like kind of a spectrum of elasticity. So obviously muscles are most elastic can absorb the most force. Um, tendons are the least elastic, but can store force or, or um, dissipate force from, to prevent it from getting to the muscle too quickly. Um, so stiffer tendons are going to uh, transmit force more efficiently into the muscles, which then can use it more efficiently mm. because they're stronger. Yeah. Uh, and I'm hearing voices in the back of my head of people saying, yeah, 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 but it's just, it's, it's extra weight and the old two seconds per pound <laughs> per mile. And, you know, I don't want to become super skinny to make up for the added muscle mass. And like, do, and, and I think a reminder to them, I'll say it out loud and then you can, you can clarify the details, but folks, it ain't going to happen. Like you're not going to put on 15 pounds of muscle. If you add an hour and a half a week of, 
of strength training to your routine, but can you enhance that message a little bit more? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like when you think about efficiency, um, it's doing, doing more with either the same amount. So let's say it's like body mass, for example, if you get stronger, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're adding weight. That means that you're using the weight that you have more efficiently. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, when it comes to like lean muscle mass, obviously like most endurance athletes are very lean already. Um, but even if you add, you know, one or two kgs, the likelihood that you lose that economically somewhere else right. in either any of your disciplines is super, super low because your body is using its resources more efficiently. So it's, it's a combination of like, obviously musculoskeletal, biomechanical and bioenergetic because it's like they all work together synergistically for peak performance. Yeah. That's very well said. Could you give us just off the top of your head, some starting points for endurance athletes that say, okay, okay, I got it. I'm, I'm in, I'll do something. I can find an extra hour, hour and a half a week. So we're not talking much. We're talking three times 30 or two times 45. Where, where would you encourage them to start if they were thinking about that? I mean, I honestly, like, even if you just do once one session, 20 minutes a week, you're probably going to make a significant difference. Is if you right? aren't already having some, if you don't already have some sort of strength training regimen in place. Um, yeah. I mean like minimal effective dose, you know, three sets of five goblet squats with a, with a kettlebell, mm. you know, at, at a percentage of body weight, like a, a lot of, I think that's probably another misconception with endurance athletes that every every exercise has to be a certain percentage of like a one rep max. And that's, that's a fallacy. Like that's obviously like that's where a lot of the research is, but ultimately it's just like, well, what is progressive overload? Okay. Well, if I weigh, um, if I'm a runner and I weigh 150 pounds, adding 35 pounds and squatting with it is, is overload. Right. right? So, um, if I'm doing, if I'm not doing anything right now, starting there, um, from a practical standpoint, like you want to address kind of the major movement patterns. So, you know, obviously talked about squatting, um, uh, a hip hinge variation. So like deadlift, but again, not thinking like barbell deadlift, like right, you're right, a power right. lifter, um, some sort of upper body pushing exercise, some sort of upper body pulling exercise, um, some sort of bracing. Um, and again, like probably the most common bracing variation would be a plank, but like ultimately there's not a lot that an endurance athlete is going to get from plank variations. There needs to be some sort of like, um, movement of the limbs, um, where it, uh, challenges the stability of the spine or like the musculature around the spine. Um, so dead bug variations, bird dog variations, crawling variations are huge. Um, there's a lot of kind of bang for your buck, with, with different crawling variations. Um, and then some sort of like rotation where mm. the hips and the spine kind of dissociate, um, hips go in one direction, spine go in the other, not necessarily like a, like a Russian twist or anything like that, because there's some like shearing that happens, especially like in the lumbar spine, but more like, um, you know, med ball throw variations where there is some sort of rotation, uh, which is also going to help with coordination as well. 
that's a, that's a, that's a great list. I'm going to ask you for similar advice with a different group that it sounds like from, you said you got married at 30, 38. No, you're 38 now. 39. I was married as oh, how old was 11, like 27, 28. Okay. So, so you're knocking on 40. Uh, I want to shift to the athlete on the backside of 40. We, we know that all things being equal, we lose about a 1% of muscle mass a year after the big 40, but all things don't have to be equal. Someone following what you're talking about. So what advice would you have for the 40 plus and folks, this applies for you 60 and 70 year olds out there too, but on the backside of 40, let's not let all things be equal. What then do they need to focus? Is it the large muscle groups that should be focused on? Is it any tips along those lines? Yeah. So I always think in terms of large muscle groups working synergistically. So that's why I like, I use the term movement patterns. Um, so if you take a squat, for example, you're going to engage basically like all your muscle groups from the hips down, uh, in addition to like challenging your spine to stabilize itself as well. So that's going to be big. Um, but really like I would say for it's usually turn aging. Cause it's not, cause I, I'm like you said, I'm, I'm almost 40 now. So like, um, I think simplification is a big, a big piece. Don't make it too, don't make it too Excellent. complicated. Yes. Um, you know, and it's, and make it accessible. So if that means like investing in, in, uh, you know, a kettlebell and a sandbag and a TRX to put in your garage, like do that. Um, so that, you know, you go spend 15 minutes, a couple times a week going through a, a quick routine. Um, but remove whatever barriers to entry may be in place or whether they're psychological or, or logistical. Um, and then adequate protein intake, you know, depending on, let's say anywhere from, from, you know, probably 1.2 to two grams per, per kilogram of body weight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which, you know, there's going to be hormonal implications there too. So, you know, talking about male athletes, obviously decreasing testosterone, female athletes, um, all sorts of, you know, progesterone and, and testosterone imbalances as, as they get older as well. So making sure that nutritional needs are met foundationally, obviously with protein being a big part of that from comes to lean muscle mass, which also plays into hormonal balance as well. Um, I think that's, that's critical. Yeah, I think that's hugely valuable. We just had uh, Julia Coletta on talking about sarcopenia a few weeks ago, mm. and and she got into the the scientific, the research side, the lab side of what you're bringing to the forefront in terms of the practical side. Question for you on the the protein. So yeah, the one point two to one point six, and maybe slightly higher as you mentioned per per kilogram gram per kilogram of body weight is the recommendation. But when people break that down, that's hard. I, what what do you suggest to get for folks that are saying, okay, I keep hearing Brad's guests say you need more protein. How do they get it? Like what? I, I mean, my routine is basically I do my protein powder in the morning to get about 30, and then I have a protein source on my salad at lunch to get another 30. I eat a snack in the afternoon with some almonds or something to get another 10 or so, and then round it out to get my you know, 100 to 110 at night. But any others, I, I have to be really in tune to it to barely make it. Any tips for folks that are saying, like, Tim, how do I get that much? 
I mean, obviously like protein supplementation is, is a kind of a shortcut. Um, if you're, if you can tolerate it from a digestive standpoint, um, I think the other thing is that like, look at your other macros and, and what those ratios look like. Um, one thing that like I do with our guys is we periodize that we try to periodize their nutrition throughout the week to where if it's a, if it's a high training day, they're going to take in, you know, 50 to 55% of their intake as carbohydrates. If it's a recovery day, we're going to flip that and they're going to be closer to 40 to 45% carbohydrate and a higher percentage of, of protein, depending on, Interesting. On, on body composition on the recovery day, not on the big training day. Right. Yeah. And some, so, and depending on like, and that's, that's going to be more of like a preseason and then in season, we may invert that. Um, but, and they're in the off season right now. So that's going to be, even more important. Um, but that's kind of a, a general formula is it's, you know, if you've got, if you're on more of a zone two day, maybe you, you know, take in, you know, the majority of your protein in the morning. Um, and you go, you know, get your two, three, four hours in, um, replenish with your normal recovery drink, whatever that is, or meal. Um, and then if it's a, if it's an interval day or if it's a more high intensity day, you know, get your carbohydrates in mm. prior to that and then, um, support refueling in a normal way. Um, but generally I think with endurance athletes, those low intensity days probably aren't low enough. Um, as totally. our friend, Alan, as our yeah. friend, Alan cousins, Alan cousins likes to remind us. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, support those days. Uh, well, make sure that like you do like adequate assessments, whether that's lactate testing or otherwise, like understand like where that first lactate threshold is so that, you know, without a shadow of a doubt, when I take in X number of calories, they can be at these percentages prior to doing my, my long run or my long ride. And then I need to refuel with this amount of carbohydrates, this amount of protein, but that you actually have, the metabolic testing in place to support utilizing those percentages. Um, but then also like, obviously you moderate your intensity appropriately as well. You must be looking over my shoulder cause you just gave us a peek at the question I was planning to ask you next. You've, you've <laughs> written about zone one, zone, zone two training, the various heart rate zones. We're hearing more and more about you need more zone one and zone two. Can you talk us through for folks that are going, yeah, I think, I think I've heard that term. I think I've seen something on Twitter about zone one, zone two training. Can you fill us in on what, what are we talking about here? What, what does that mean? Why does it matter? What's the impact it has for, for everyone, for those who are simply wanting to maybe reduce their HRV through better health, to the person who's saying, I want to compete at a higher level. What do you mean I need more zone one and zone two? So in a typical like five zone heart rate model, you know, zone one is going to be 50 to 60%, uh, at least like as far as uh, like, for example, polar uh, uses a pretty, pretty straightforward 50 to 60 or basically 50 to hundred percent and 10% intervals zone one, zone two, zone two, 60 to 70%. Um, and I think Garmin is fairly similar for, um, for cycling running is going to be a little bit different. Um, but essentially like zone two is, or the top of zone two is around 70 to 75% of your max heart rate. And 
the reason that it's important from a physiological standpoint is, um, so if you think about like the structure of the heart, so you've got all four chambers, you got your atria, you got your ventricles, the left ventricle specifically is what pumps blood into the rest of the circulatory system through the aorta. And with, once you get past that 70 to 75% threshold, again, there's obviously like, there's a genetic component there too. But so generally speaking, somewhere in that range, the left ventricle stops filling completely Mm. like the internal volume of the left ventricle. So when it ejects blood into the rest of the system through the aorta, it doesn't have the full volume that it can per contraction of the heart. So what kind of that zone one, zone two, especially zone two, um, spending a significant amount of time in those zones consistently versus like in more interval based, so kind of in and out of zone two is going to ensure that the, uh, you achieve what's called like eccentric left ventricular hypertrophy. So like the two kinds of contractions are eccentric and concentric and hypertrophy, meaning like growth of like the muscle fibers. Um, even within the left ventricle, you've got eccentric hypertrophy, which is uh, improving the internal diameter. So that the kind of a stretch or, or a, a, a volume overload of the, the left ventricle. So if you can imagine like, um, like a Boda bag, right. You're basically, you fill it with, with water, wine or whatever, and it's going to stretch to contain that volume. And then you squeeze it to get it out. It's exactly what that overload is like on the other end, you've got concentric hypertrophy, which the result is the same, which is an improvement in cardiac output or the amount of blood or that, that the force that it gets into the system. Um, but with concentric hypertrophy, it's more of a a pressure overload. So this is what you're going to get when you kind of push, um, a little bit above that tempo pace, um, or you're working in like long duration, like VO two intervals, you know, like your four by four, four by eight Mm kind of range Mm -hmm. at, 85 ish percent of your max heart rate. Again, obviously VO2 is going to be relative, but um, you still get an improvement in cardiac output. And in, in other words, the, the stroke volume and the amount of, of blood per beat is going to improve, but the internal diameter of the left ventricle is not going to increase. It's actually going to decrease. So resting heart rate increases as a result of that, even though the efficiency of the heart maybe improves with the eccentric left ventricular hypertrophy, resting heart rate goes down, working heart rate at the same intensity decreases as well, which then as you increase intensity, you're working, you're utilizing the efficiency of the heart more like it's just better in general. That's as so. well as anybody's ever described it on here. And we've had a lot of people describe it. So <laughs> nice job. That makes so much sense. So you're not filling that left ventricle entirely when you're doing those intervals, when you're doing that tempo run, you need right. the, you need the Z one Z two to prep the system to prepare it so that you can maximize those efforts. Right. And that's, it's like, so basically you've got, you've got two ends of the continuum. So adaptations at the heart level are, are central adaptations, adaptations in the, the rest of the system are peripheral adaptations. 
periphery, you've got, you've got uh, improved capillarization. So new capillary beds, improved density, more capillaries, um, as well as like the actual size of the capillaries increases. And then at the cellular level, you, you build new mitochondria, you develop uh, aerobic enzymes to deal with um, lactate, pyruvate, some of the waste products that are produced in the cell. Um, But then with a more efficient, like actual heart muscle, blood goes through the whole system, oxygen gets into the cells, the cells can turn over the lactate and the pyruvate and hydrogen ions faster, bring the lactate back into the bloodstream, process it through the liver, use it as a fuel source at lower intensities. So it all works together synergistically, both the central adaptations, the peripheral adaptations at higher intensities is where a lot of the peripheral adaptations happen, which are are great from obviously like a power production standpoint and a performance perspective. But in terms of like actually facilitating the whole process, you kind of, you need both. And mm. Alan's going to get mad that I said central and peripheral adaptations. Cause <laughs> that's all right. Oh, uh, that, that, okay. So that's super helpful. I do. I don't want to let us get off of this one without helping folks understand max heart rate. Cause a lot of them are hearing, well, two twenty minus your age. And we're like, no. Oof. So what would you suggest? You go out and run a 400 and really hammer that last hundred meters coming down the straightaway and see what it ends up being. What, what is your, What's your suggestion for people to try to get somewhere in the ballpark? You're, you're probably not going to hit your true exact max, but how, how can they get within two, three beats of that thing? Um, Without a lab test. I think depending on, depending on the discipline, I would say, obviously, if, if, if you're strictly a runner, obviously you want to use some sort of running assessment. I would do... Um, like an eight to 10 minute easy warm up, and then, um, two minutes, really, really hard. Couple minutes, easy, two minutes, really, really hard again. Um, and probably do that for about 20 minutes cumulatively. So like two minutes on one minute off. And then in that last interval is you'll probably get pretty close to your max heart rate. Okay. Um, for cyclists, I would probably do like a Carmichael test. Okay. So okay. 10 minute warm up, eight minute time trial. That's good. Well, there's a lot more I want to ask you, but let, let's just wrap it up with one more. What, some of the biggest lessons you've learned, you know, pick out one or two that, that come to the forefront in terms of surprise to you as you've advanced in your career, as you've studied, if you've worked with these athletes, what, what are one or two of the surprises that you thought, well, we didn't get that in school or I, I didn't expect to see that come out of the research or <laughs> any of those kinds of things that pop into your head that might be a surprise for folks that aren't doing what you and I are doing or spending our days reading research and, and work with folks in the real world. Big question. Um, I think the biggest thing is the communication piece, mm. you know, like, I think obviously being in these professions, it's easy for us to go really, really deep on physiology, on periodization, on all of the, the practical components, but really like 
none of that matters if we don't have really, really good communication skills. Mm. And a lot of that, you know, like going back to the RSE conversation, you know, understanding yourself for one thing, I was actually having a very similar conversation with uh, one of my business partners earlier today. A lot of people purport to be authentic and without really having a strong sense of identity, like understanding really on deep level who they are. Wow. For any number of reasons. Right. Um, but knowing yourself really, really well, knowing your strengths, weaknesses, um, et cetera, will help you as a practitioner build better rapport, build better relationships with your athletes so that all of the physiology, all the periodization, all the practical stuff is enhanced because you've built that relationship with, with the athlete or the athletes that you're working with. Um, but obviously like that requires a lot of internal work and then it requires a lot of external work from a relationship standpoint. Yeah. Tim, awesome job, man. Really appreciate it. And again, thank you for your willingness to do this. It, you know, we traded some, some texts and stuff for a couple of months and you're like, okay, now I think I'm ready. Uh, thank you for, for putting yourself out there. And you, you just shared so many things that I wasn't familiar with before. And I'm sure I'm not alone and <laughs> apply to all, like we talked about, this approach that you said would be really helpful here, I hear it as, wow, that, that would have made me a better parent. That, that would make mm. me a better supervisor. That'd be, so, so thank you. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks for, for putting yourself out there and being willing to share some of these struggles and your journey along the way. I appreciate you inviting me. Great questions. Absolutely. Take care, buddy. Hi, Brad. Thank you, Tim. Your willingness to share your journey is very much appreciated and I, I, I think will really make a difference out there. A reminder to employers, benefit consultants, and complimentary wellness providers, Catalyst Coaching 360 not only offers coaching to support the physical and mental well-being of those you serve, they also have access to Catalyst Elite, our high-performance coaching for those with big goals on the horizon, either personally or professionally. Feel free to reach out anytime to discuss details, results at catalystcoaching360.com or visit the website catalystcoaching360.com anytime. And now it's time to be a catalyst. This is Catalyst Coaching 360's Dr. Brad Cooper. Make it a great rest of your week and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst 360 podcast or maybe over on the YouTube coaching channel.